Thank you for downloading this episode of Software Gone Wild, a podcast focused on everything software defined. To get more episodes and explore other SDN and network automation resources, visit sdn.ipspace.net. Welcome to an automation-focused Software Gone Wild episode. Today, we'll talk with Carl Buchmann. He was a student in my network automation online course. And after completing the course, he sent me a nice lengthy email discussing how he went from thinking about automation as this thingy where you build a button to press to thinking about the whole framework of development, infrastructure as code, and so on. So I said, well, this is awesome. We should do a podcast on that. It took us a little bit longer than expected. The blog post was published in February 2018, and now it's end of October. But I don't think that anything has changed in the meantime. So welcome, Carl. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Ivan. Glad to be here. Before we go into details, let me also introduce Chris Young. Everyone knows him. Chris is the awesome guy that always throws in a network management question that I always forget about. And Chris will not talk about SNMP today, right? But it's SNMP. Okay, good. So Chris, what are you doing these days? Oh, I am still at uh, working at HPE. No, I don't represent them. And this is purely my own thoughts and opinions. Lawyers make me say that. And I am just digging into a uh, new role internally and then working on getting my home automation all pimped out for the winter. Uh, seasons are changing over here, so I have to change all my automations from my dealing with summer stuff to make the house comfortable to dealing with winter stuff to make the house comfortable. And you're based in Canada, right? I am. Yep. So it is, you know, light, days are getting shorter and nights are getting colder. You already have a meter of snow or is that coming next week? We have been very lucky in some places of the world. Global warming is a good thing. And no, we have not seen snow here yet in almost the end of October, but I'm expecting to see it soon. And it's probably going to be a bad one from what they say. Okay, let's see. Back to Carl. Carl, where are you based and what are you doing? I'm based in Ottawa, Canada, so the national capital. And I work as a managing solution consultant for Terramoc, a pivot company. But like Chris, I have to state that this podcast, it's all my personal opinions and not the opinions of the company. And yeah, in terms of what I'm doing on a day-to-day -day basis, you know, I'm involved in both the pre-sales aspect as well as the delivery projects focused primarily in data center technologies. And I just figured out that this will be the most polite podcast ever, right? I'm sorry. <laughs> Yeah, with two Canadians, absolutely. <laughs> so, Carl, how did you start with network automation? What brought you to the realization that it's time to start automating stuff? I mean, as a consultant, and I've been working as a consultant for the last 10 years, you know, you go into environments and you're asked to do massive amount of changes. I focused at the beginning of for my consulting career and doing uh, large core upgrades in different sectors, so either healthcare, manufacturing, federal government, provincial agencies, and doing those changes manually simply did not scale or human errors were going to happen. So back at the beginning, uh, when I started automating things, I was doing primarily everything through Excel with some VB scripting. So I'd had some input fields and it, you know, I'd, I'd create a little button that would create my configuration. But obviously the using Excel as a tool is good. It, you know, it's a good way of creating a nice data model and getting some consistent configuration out of it. But because Excel does not communicate with device, it's a one-time tool. It was good for my purpose of doing sort of those one-time deployments got me some consistent configuration and was able to drive consistency, which is at the time that was the most important thing to me. But as I evolved and worked in environments where I was not only involved in sort of the day one deployment, I was also remained on site or supported the customer for many years. I always struggled with, okay, trying to keep my tooling up to date because we 
the Excel tool that I developed was really used as the initial deployment tool. Sometimes I developed some Excel tools that the customers could use going forward to create some uh, snippets of configuration, but it cannot be considered a source of truth because we weren't using it consistently or updated or something was done out of band. It was hard to detect. So I've been following your blog for several years now, been a subscriber for a long time and always looking at the trends in the industry and automation. And even before your course, I had went to a Cisco Live event and automation was a, you know, DevNet became uh, the big thing that year at Cisco Live, was introduced to a lot of different things. And I was like, how can I use this effectively? So I think uh, then I hopped on your course in late 2016 and learned Ansible and what it can do, which I started using in my projects to mostly gather data. I think I followed some of your advice there, just use it to gather information. So I would use a lot in projects to just gather information before either a software upgrade or some changes. So then I could do compares. And afterwards, you know, we're pushing configuration, but we were still using it all within the framework of doing it just on the Linux machine, changing our data on the Linux server without interfacing with Git. Because, you know, for me, Git was yet something else I had to learn. And like I mentioned in my blog post, I regret doing that so late because I found once we integrated with Git, it allowed us to track everything and share what we're doing. Because uh, most of the times with the customer, it's not only one person doing the job, but many people. So yeah, like that's kind of my journey. And now I'm focusing on mentoring teams on how to use Ansible and people are seeing it as a, a big game changer of how they manage their infrastructure. Okay, if we start at the very beginning, like everyone else, you were using Excel as the configuration management tool. It's really hard to persuade people to move even from Excel to Ansible with some data files and Jinja too. What would you say are the things why, or the reasons why you really should drop Excel and start using something else? I think one of the main reasons is Excel potentially could do it through a VB script to gather data dynamically, but it's probably very complex. I think in terms of using Ansible, a lot of those modules are built into gather information and truly make it your source of truth. Because everything's treated as text as well, it's a lot easier to track than an Excel file. I'm all about simplicity. And I personally really like the simplicity of treating everything as text. Forget about just scripting automation or pushing code, but just even maintaining your documentation about your environment or you know a series of steps. When you go back and look at the Git history, you can see, oh, these steps have changed and why. It's all the rich history that you get in Git in terms of managing content that, in my opinion, is so appealing. And one of the tools I've used to help people over that gap or that fear of, you know, I'm comfortable with Excel is having a proper text editor that has some of the linting. So, you know, in my blog post, I mentioned that, you know, I personally use uh, Visual Studio Code. There's others out there, uh, use your own. But I think it's very important to have something that can integrate with Git and also has some extensions that allow linting of your code. So, again, it helps you create content a bit more easily and provides that graphical interface, if you wish, that people miss when they go from writing a text file versus working in Excel. Yeah, well, I try to use Git from the command line because I think that, you know, you should learn the command line commands because eventually they will make you work faster. But I totally understand why someone just starting with Git would love to have a plugin for an editor that could just allow you to commit straight from the editor, for example. A couple of things. So you said the word linting. What is linting for people who are not familiar with that term? Just make sure we have everybody on the same page. Sure. So uh, in terms of linting is just uh, making sure that 
For example, if you're writing a YAML file, it will validate that your syntax is correct. So at first, when I started working with Ansible and I was just VIing into my files, most of the times I would try to run my playbook and it would just fail. I definitely have a lot less of that, you know, especially from a YAML syntax perspective. So it helps with that. It also does outside, I guess, yeah, I'll stop there from linting perspective. Yeah, so, you can- yeah, it's funny that everybody has their own GUI environment they like. I'm actually a big PyCharm user. I've got Pro Edition, all that, and uh, the, the built-in PyLinting, which is, again, it's, it's usually a language-specific thing. So for PyCharm, for instance, you have um, Pepe compliance, so you can make sure you have like two spaces between your code blocks, and it kind of makes it more readable. And, you know, it does have a Git plugin, uh, but what I, I find nice in a lot of the different IDEs is that you have the ability to have like a terminal right within it. So you can still, uh, Yvonne, like to your point, definitely, if you learn the command line, you become more effective, but you can kind of have this back and forth kind of training wheels. You can take the training wheels off and go over to the terminal and break things a lot faster if you so choose. So it's kind of nice. Yeah, so one of the things I like about using an ID as well is I have a, an extension in Visual Studio Code called uh, Git Lens. So this will highlight or give me the information about all the different commits as I browse through text file, YAML, or Jinja templates. So if I'm reviewing someone's pull request, for example, I pull it into the ID and I can see exactly what he's changed. I can compare very easily with a previous version. Of course, you can do a lot of this through the command line interface, but I find it very intuitive, especially to do diffs on file because you can see them side by side and browse through the, the Git history is, in my opinion, a lot better through an ID than through the command line. You just sold me the idea, okay. <laughs> <laughs> One question I have is, so you said you're kind of leading teams and mentoring people through using Git. How do you deal with the human aspect? That's the one that always drives me crazy. Having Git history is great, but it makes me want to be impolite for a Canadian. We'll, we'll put it that way. I go into the Git history and the commit message is fixed things. How do you deal with that, the human aspect of making sure people actually follow good code hygiene, commit messages that are meaningful, making sure that you actually have comments in code, those kinds of things. How are you dealing with that with people who I'm guessing a lot of these people are not uh, coming from any kind of a, a trained coding background? Yeah, of course, the human aspect of even adopting automation and these new tools is still a struggle, right? There's no magic recipes, but I spend a lot of time talking about branching strategies, keeping branches small for changes. So it, it does go through a peer review process and we do educate people that those commit messages are essentially enhance your comments that you do for your code. And we encourage people like make something meaningful because this is how we're going to review. Of course, even for me, when I've started, I used to do those type of commit messages too, especially if I was developing something for myself. But we really, what you have to emphasize in the group is it's this is your collaboration tool. The more rich you make it, the more useful it will be for everyone. Chris, for me, well, at least for the people I worked with, the point where they realized why they need that was when they had to go back and it was helpful to them. So I wasn't really pushing Git down people's throats. I was pushing a project management software. And of course, there was this huge backlash and everyone complained how hard it is to type everything into that software. But then, you know, like the guy who was opposing the most came back to me in six months and said, you know what? It's really cool when the customer calls me and I can tell him exactly what we agreed six months ago. So you saw this at the point where people realize why it helps them to have a verbose history. Before they realize that, it's just you preaching and them going like, yeah, sure, let's move on. Yeah, I'm just trying to get, you know, find a way to remind myself of why I should do this when I'm working on my own projects. Oh, because three months from now, you'll go like, what was I thinking? Oh, yeah, I know. I keep doing that all the time and I keep not learning my own lesson. So 
one of the other points we do as well when I'm, I'm teaching this is, again, this is through the ID. I think it's easier to stage. Let's say you're doing a big modification, you're modifying many files, and you want different commit messages. I find it's very easy, at least in VS Code, to stage different files, put a different commit messages. So we, we spend time talking about that as well, to not try to group something, uh, you know, work on something for two weeks and then commit. Try to keep your changes small. Encourage the teams that this will pay dividends later. And like Ivan said, is show them in a use case if something goes wrong in the future, uh, demonstrate why that was important. That's really useful. Um, I think I think you've hit something that I see a lot of is that people jump into the I must automate camp. Like I think that's the I must automate everything sickness has infected the entire net, at least the networking industry now. But most people who jump into it don't bother with that version control aspect of it. So they just end up um, making it easier to blow up their environment more efficiently. So I really love the idea of using Git and just any, well, any version control. You said you were doing kind of peer review process. Are you using any tooling for that? So the customers I'm working with, so in terms of pull review, it's always through uh, pull requests. So we're using uh, TFS, Team Foundation Server, at the customer I'm working at now. But, you know, even through GitHub, I mean, you know, just a front end to Git is really what's important. And then we use the pull request process to review or just control change in our, our lab environment. To be frank, pull requests are self-approved or you have the, the options to, to peer review it. But at least we have that rich history to go back. In some of the environments, we're still looking to enforce that pull request to be controlled and managed. And that's something I'm still learning how to do, to be honest, to manage it so that certain teams need to approve it. For example, if, if you have a PR, you want the security team to also weigh in. How could you do that automatically to make sure you know certain change concerns security, uh, certain don't? So that's something I'm kind of investing on how to do that pre-review process better. Oh, that one is just common sense. It's common sense, but I think it's, you could use Garrett to do that, but are you, like, what are people actually using nowadays? Oh, you have peer review built into practically any Git frontend. So it's GitLab, it's GitHub, it's Bitbucket, it's Garrett, it's, I mean, I sort of looked at Garrett years ago, and then I was like, why should I do that? I mean, GitHub or GitLab has all I need built in. So why bother with yet another tool? I think part of the reason might be is that I know GitLab, you can't have stuff running on site, but GitHub, for instance, unless you're running enterprise, do you really want all your secrets in the cloud? Now, granted, somebody probably put your secrets in the cloud anyway, so it's kind of a moot point, but. So GitLab <laughs> is available on-prem. <laughs> Yeah, well, if you are a serious enterprise and you think you will be running on free open source software without paying even for the support, then mm -hmm, I'm wondering. Yeah, I also like to keep the tool chain as simple as possible, uh, especially, you know, the target audience here is typically infrastructure folks, not software developers. And I think it's important to try to keep the tooling to minimal. Even if you go into the CI and CD environment and the Jenkins, Travis's of the world or all these other tools, it's definitely, at least for me, it's definitely intimidating to see all these different options in Vester Breed. But I try to see how I can, to the best of the ability, make everything work within a smaller footprint solution to keep the stack simple. Because then maintaining that stack is going to be the other challenge. Yeah, when you have full-time people maintaining your automation stack, it gets to be a bit much. And actually, yeah, it's the interesting thing is, I'm, I don't know if you guys saw this, but uh, GitHub announced their workflows last week. So there was a new beta feature coming out where that you're going to, at least in theory, be able to get that CICD flow directly within GitHub without having to use a third-party plugin. So that could even take your tool chain a little smaller, which is cool. So speaking of uh, CI/CD, what are you doing for, or are you doing anything for testing when you're doing these automation flows? And is there any automated testing that you guys have built out? Um, that's, you know, networking for me, that's always an interesting one is 30 years in and ping is still our best tool. Personally, right now, that's something that I'm starting to learn and explore. 
right now, I would say we do some of those tests manually. We focus a lot on not only generating the configuration that will go on the device, but also from the YAML group or host bars, I generate, for example, a CSV file that is potentially a bit easier to filter and to look at. can actually do that all within the text editor as well. And we have those, like you said, ping tests or whatnot. But yeah, it's a challenge in the network industry to build, especially the automated uh, verification of a network and changes between your test environment and product environment. I'm always fond of saying that the network is always broken. And the thing that I don't think anybody realizes about the network is that it can be 99% broken and chances are it'll still work. It's only when it's 100% broken, which that's when you've got issues. I'm always interested in how people are trying to identify what isn't working so they can get it fixed before the next thing breaks. Well, there are like three aspects to this whole thing. First one is, can you simulate changes to the network in a lab? And I think that for most people, the realistic answer is no. And unless you are 100% cumulus, Everyone else can't even figure out how to name the interfaces consistently. So you can't even take the config file from your running boxes and put them in a lab without changing the interface names. Yeah, of course. Now someone will say, but on Junos, I can do rename. Yeah, sure, you can. So what? That's obstacle number one. Obstacle number two, obviously, is data plane differences between the lab devices, the virtual devices, and the physical devices. Because on one end, you have software-based forwarding. On the other end, you have cardboard silicon. You have switching silicon that does or does not work as specified. The third problem is that we don't have unit tests. We don't even know what we should be testing in that virtualized network environment. Yeah, we can verify that LDP is up and OSPF is up and BGP is up and the routes are there and we get the right routes with the right next hops on the right switches. But does that guarantee the network will work? I don't think so. We just don't have the unit test. We don't know what to test because no one ever wrote down complete picture of what the network should be supporting. But let me not get started on that one. The realistic thing that people are doing is they are testing their automation software. So as you write your automation software, you should write unit tests and integration tests, maybe using Cisco or Arista or Juniper or Cumulus or whatever virtual devices so that your software interacts with something that is approximately as broken as what it will encounter in real life. And there are people doing that. Or even less than that, there are people who validate data before they run the Ansible playbook. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm focusing on is validating that the data input is correct. Just basic linting on the code and also generating so that artifacts that we can include in the pull requests. You know, the one big thing I'm working on now is when you run plain check mode, for instance, uh, in Ansible, it gives you what it's going to push to the device. And sometimes you can also get the diff. Well, I want to record the diff automatically, run the plain check mode as part of a CI pipeline and put that in the pull request. So when we're reviewing, we don't only see my intended configuration and the difference between my intent, but also what's the difference between the running config and my intended config in case someone did a change out of band, which, you know, that's the biggest struggle that I have is we implement these tools. And then if out of band changes happen, we overwrite them the next time we run the playbook. You know how David Barroso decided to deal with that problem? How did he do it? Or write it? Yeah, well, he said the third time they learned. Yeah. I mean, there's only so much you can do. Yeah, the challenge is that, and you know, I think you've stated this in one of your blogs, Ivan, is the network, the challenge with the network, it's a huge blast radius, right? Yes. Our customers are typically server teams or other teams as well, right? It's not just a networking team. So to make everyone happy, you have to put the controls into place, especially as you start adopting it, or else my fear is that 
you know, there's going to be a couple of incidents and then the company will say, well, this doesn't work. But at the end of the day, it's not the automation tool. It's the framework or the methodology that wasn't followed. By the way, talking about easy, small starts, you said that you started by gathering data and using that data in some sensible way. So what would be a typical thing you did at that stage? How would automation help you at that point? I think two summers ago, we had to do an upgrade of our Nexus switches, which also support a sand fabric to a new version of code. And when you're running a sand fabric, the one thing that's important is to make sure all the hosts are logged in and they see their their sand drives. And we can see that from a, a switch perspective. What we never know is that when we're doing these maintenance on the weekends, are the servers purposely down or is there something broken before we even upgrade? So what I did is I created, you know, some gathering facts of playbooks to gather that information. So from the zoning perspective, uh, but the active state, uh, not the configuration state. And then just stored in a file and stored it so that I can consistently compare for my upgrade and after my upgrade. And that gave me the reassurance that, you know, if I saw a diff, okay, then I'm going to address why did that host, you know, after the switch reboot, do I need to manually intervene to bring that host back online, which happens in a, a SAN world. Some servers just don't like switch reboots that much. So it helped us make sure that before and after the change, we're able to bring the environment back to the original state. Ah, so you implemented your own Nagios dashboard. Pretty much. I was reading a blog post by Gianpaolo Borina yesterday, talking about exactly that, how he's using show commands before and after an upgrade and what tools he's using. And I tried to do that as a use case in one of the automation courses and quickly stumbled upon the problem that there's so much time-sensitive data in the printouts, like, uh, for example, the timeouts or the uptime or when was the last whatever received. So how do you deal with that? How do you extract what's really useful from all the time-sensitive chaff that you really don't want to deal with in the printouts? Yeah, so I find the easiest way sometimes is when you're doing that show command using the grep tools available within that show command of that platform to only get data that you want that is not time-sensitive. Of course, if you're getting like a routing table or something that it is part of the line that you want to see, then you have to do some more gather data, parse it, get structured data out of it, and you compare the structured data, not the actual pre-parsed output. So the text FSM approach? Yeah. Well, whatever, something along those lines. Yeah, for sure, yeah. Problem I had was I tried to find the OSPF neighbors, and of course there's the show IP OSPF interface command, which is great, but it has the timeout on it, so oops. Exactly. An example like that for, and we did a change where we changed some of the routing in the campus environment. And I did run into that and, you know, lack of time. I relied more on just the diff output. It will highlight things differently, whether it's the full line or just partial text, which then, you know, for a human, it's still harder to decipher. But sometimes depending on the diff tool that you're using can highlight an entire line or highlight just a specific change. Ah, so you are then relying on the operator to quickly spot the difference. Correct, which is not the best way to do it, but in a pinch, if you need something. It's better than text FSM. <laughs> it's better than nothing, right? Before New Ansible, we would do this manually and record our putty sessions and then compare our putty sessions, but at least you have the data in the same sequence, right? And it's a bit easier to compare. But yeah, no, interesting challenges that we have on the networking side. I kind of find it interesting that we're still, it's almost like we're not automating the network. We're augmenting the human being, if you understand that distinction, right? Yes. A lot of the things that we're still doing is we're not trying to turn over 
and maybe we're just not there yet from our technological evolution as our profession, as our domain of networking. But we're trying to just make the people more effective rather than let the network kind of take care of itself. But Chris, that reminds me of that XKCD comic, you know, where someone comes to a program and saying, oh, I need this program that would take the pictures from the internet. And the program is like, yeah, no problem. And geolocate them, not a big deal. And figure out if the picture was taken in a national park. And the program is like, yeah, trivial. And then identify what birds are in the picture. Oh, give me a team in five years. Mm-hmm. So we are augmenting people, I think, because some of the things we are trying to solve are really, really hard. Yes, absolutely. No question. And I think as a profession, we all think we're special, definitely. But I think networking is probably one of the most, the riskiest places you can make changes because of blast radius. So we have to be very sensitive about how we move forward before we, you know, to, to Carl's point, was it the people or was it the tools or like, where did the problem happen? right? All it takes is is one bad experience. And it's also one of the few tightly coupled distributed systems in IT. Yes. Everyone else just assumes that the layer below him works, and then they make their their decision. And if the layer below doesn't work, then, you know, all hell breaks loose, but they blame the lower layer. Yes. So to me, it's a good point, Chris, is like, what are we trying to do? And, And to me, what I try to communicate is that Automation does not always save us time right away, especially when you enforce these practices of using Git and a proper process to actually document what you're doing. It's more the long time goal. And, you know, what I've seen and experienced with organizations is they keep on accumulating technical debt because they, you know, you do a project, your documentation Day one of that when that project is delivered is good, but as soon as you're day two, day three, day 10, that documentation is already out of date and rarely it is maintained. So I tend, and that's what, as a consultant, that's what, how I'm trying to drive this is it's about having better documentation, better consistency. And when you're going to do your next project, your next upgrade, even if you change your platform, if you have a good data model, it should be, you know, I'm just going to update the Jinja template. You shouldn't even have to worry too much about updating your variable input. And that's what I'm trying to encourage by this is you have to look at this as a long-term strategy because some people do get discouraged by like, oh, you're adding complexity to my process. I can't just jump on a switch and configure the interface. Now you're telling me I have to enter it in the system, create a pull request, go through that review, you know, merge it and deploy it. Some people will say, well, this is slow, especially for one-time changes. So how have you guys been able to convince new customers that the extra steps or whatnot are what are going to benefit them? I think for me, this is not new. This is network management forever, right? There's always been that, the governance on top of it, that how do things get done? I remember actually a customer getting so mad at me that there was like spit flying out of his mouth because I told him that I wouldn't even look at their network management until they got their switches into a single version of code. Same model of switch and there was like 17 different versions of code running on them. So like, how do you even begin to troubleshoot that? And they just didn't want to hear that they had to have some policies and strategies and some governance around what went into the network. We often look at automation as it being fast. We're going to do this faster. That's part of the advantages, but the bigger one to me is actually we're going to make it reliable. That's the bigger one to me is is how do we make these changes? And I have been almost just blessed miraculously in my career that other than my own lab, I will preface that, I have never been the guy who hit the button that blew up the network. Oh, I did. But I have been standing beside that guy so many times it's not even funny. And in every single case that I can remember, some measure of upfront work would have prevented that outage. Yeah, I know, Yvonne, it's crazy. Like everybody's got that story. I don't have that story that I blew up a production network. I don't know. I don't know how it happens, but. Well, I cut a country off internet. Can't get any better than that. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) It was mid nineties, so it wasn't that bad, but yeah. So it was like four people. A bit more, yeah. But yeah, Carl, to your point, I think it's the doing things in a better way. You know, I, I watched a international organization where it was a sequence 
of errors that had been made over time. And this is, again, this is the 90s or early 2000s, still days of modem banks. And it was a combination of a static route injected into the route table that had a decimal point. The decimal point was in the wrong place. Injected into the route table where reverse poisoning was turned off with dial-on-demand modem banks all over this world. And it basically took the organization down for two days because every time they closed a link to try to stop the poisoning from injecting the route backwards, the modems would call, turn on and go, oh, internet link's down, call back into the front end and re-inject it. And it was just essentially because of one decimal point. Yeah, I was a consultant at that particular customer and I got nothing done for two days and got paid for it. So I didn't mind so much, but I learned lessons. Oh yeah, and even with automation, like I've still made mistakes when using automation, when you're pushing changes. Automation does not necessarily fix the human error. The human error is just at a different level. Empowers the human error. (laughs) Well, Chris, what I prefer using instead of increasing reliability, because that might not be the case, is automation increases consistency. Yes. So we are making the same mistake consistently. Yes. And once we fix it, at least that one mistake is gone. There might be 50 others, but at least we are not making them randomly. We are making them consistently. As to Carl's question, it's really hard to persuade people who don't feel the pain. I mostly see people going down the automation path either because they realize it makes sense for their career and eventually everyone will start asking for that, so better get ready. Or people who got burned out so badly that they are now ready to try anything to get out of the mess. It's like, you know, going to the dentist. You try not to go as long as it doesn't hurt too much. And when it doesn't hurt too much, you encounter people where you just can't move them. My favorite story, you know, the whole IT team sitting at the same table And I just briefly explained how the networking team could write this small app where the server people would, you know, using LDP data, you know where the servers are. You can allow the server people to change their own VLANs. You have the allowed range of VLANs. They request a VLAN, you just configure it. Why not? And there was this guy in the room who totally automated the deployment of websites for this IT department because they were hosting a lot of websites for other departments in the company. And he was jumping up and down saying, yes, 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 this is what we need. It's like a no-brainer. I mean, the front end is maybe two days of programming and the back end is an Ansible playbook. Network manager said like, no, we don't need that. We only change a VLAN once a week or something. We can do it manually. So nothing you can do. I mean, we all tried to move him, but he just wouldn't move. A good question, Carl. We all have experiences with certain environments, right? But as a consultant, I'm guessing you get different environments. And we all know, like, you should go after what is the least amount of work for the the highest amount of payoff. If I'm there, you could automate anything you want. What are the things that when you encounter a new customer, what's the low hanging fruit that tends to have the most payback? What do you, is there anything in common you see amongst customers? That's a hard question because every customer (laughs) has their own challenges and where they have their pain. But to me, the the lowest hanging fruit when we begin automation is gathering data, creating reports on the customer's environment. That's typically how I start because pushing code, pushing configuration, that's where you have to be to have a good process to, to make sure that that's done correctly. But gathering data, that's something we can do right away and get benefits right away just from collecting data. Yeah, every customer has some report they always wanted to have but couldn't get out of any network management tool. Yeah. And as someone said, you can learn a lot just by watching. Amazingly, it's quite often either the topology report, so you just go and look at LDP stuff and create a diagram or a list of how the network is actually connected. And you would go like, doesn't that come out of any network management tool? And it should. And I don't know why people don't get that out of those tools. The other one that's pretty common is transceiver levels. What do you mean by transceiver levels? What's the level of the receive signal I see on my transceiver 
on an optical link. Okay, from an optical perspective. Okay, interesting. So you've ran in, into a lot of challenges with, I guess, layer one issues that you've been able to gather information about. Yeah, well, the problem is that every box shows you what the actual levels are. But for many boxes, those levels aren't in any MIB or anything. So you actually have to do show commands and extract data because that information just isn't available through any standard mechanism. That's the problem. Yeah, I think when you're gathering data and through the Jinja template, you're able to also create some basic math rules like what I've done myself. So I get the structured data. And I do an evaluation of that data. And then I have a column sort of printing out a comment. And I'll have the comment saying warning or there's an issue with this. So then you can filter out on that column and identify very quickly where the issues are. An example of that that I was having is back to my sand fabric. We've been having issues with hosts losing paths on the network. From a network level, they seem fine. But when we went on the host, you know, they had three out of four paths. So actually used Ansible to query the Windows host, run a PowerShell command, PowerShell support structured data return. It would return to me the data and I would create basic calculation. If you see less than four paths, print me, you know, warning in this column. Uh, so then it was very easy to identify which hosts had a problem. Yeah, like the easiest possible thing that you can do. And yet again, I don't know why they couldn't get that of network management software. Real life story of a large campus network that had a total power outage. And then the boss said after everything was recovered, now I want to see which UPSs survived the outage. So what do you do? You need the uptime of all the switches. And for whatever reason, they couldn't get that out of network management system. So Somehow you go into every switch and you query the uptime and uh, you report on which uptimes are too low. Yeah, there's a lot of those easy ones, you know, the taking your LLDP and creating like using GraphViz to create a topology. But the other thing that I've done with that personally is having a very, shall we say, dynamic lab environment. You never really know what's connected to what. So I was pulling out, again, LLDP neighbor data. And then uh, this will be the only time I use SNMP. I used SNMP sets to write the neighbor the far end neighbor to the local interface description mm -hmm. so that you could tell and on a dynamic basis. And this would run, you know, just cron it off every 24 hours so that my environment at one point in time, it's a little bit of a mess at the moment, but at one point in time, I had a within 24 hours, always up to date Visio diagram or GraphViz diagram PDF, as well as every single interface in the entire environment, as long as it was connected to something that supported LDP had a up-to-date interface description so that in the event that the network goes down and you're looking at the switch going, what do I do with this? At least you've got that information there. So there's a lot of cool, small games that I think you can get exactly like you're doing, Carl, is just pull out the data and then, you know, what do I do with the data? But I think that also takes the knowledge, networking knowledge, not how does a syntax or a CLI work? How do I type in the commands, network, OSP, up, blah, 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 whatever? But actually, how do these things work? How do the functions, the fundamentals, which is still something that I see a lot of people lack. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's the same everywhere. I mean, you can't write an accounting software without having someone on staff that understands a little bit of accounting, right? You say that, and then I point you back to how many examples of network management software didn't do what they needed it to do, which you think would be basic things. Yeah, because they were sold to managers based on flashy PowerPoints. Yeah, or written by people who didn't understand networking in some cases. Oh, they just needed to look nice. Exactly. The challenge we face in networking, though, things are not consistent even within a vendor, right? So I find even if you try to write software, trying to adhere to all the various vendors and how their interface works, there's just so many variances out there. It must be extremely difficult to try to create something that can work with all. And you can, at least for me, that's something like as I started automating more and more, like I thought some vendors, their OS was the same across the same platform. But as you go to automate them, the version three versus version five of their product, 
even though it says it's the same OS, it doesn't behave the same way. You don't have the same commands, even though if I look at a CLI, it's pretty consistent, right? The syntax changes, the API changes, the output changes, commands are removed. Yeah. Yep. So I don't think that's just networking problem. I mean, have you ever tried working with any database for over a span of like 10 years? True. Yeah. They even managed to break my word macros. Even that doesn't survive upgrades. <laughs> anyway, let's slowly wrap this up. Now that we're all depressed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now that we're all depressed, let's wrap this up. Carl, if someone wants to go down that same path, what would you recommend? Where should they start? What should they do? How can they get started? I think the first thing to get started, and that's why I published something on GitHub, my infrastructure as code development workstation, is to have a good environment where they can develop easily. In my case, I focus on Ansible. I think that's very important to have the right tooling to do that. So take the time to learn that and use those appropriate tools. And then afterwards is, like we mentioned, like the easy steps of going into automation is create some Ansible playbooks that gather information from the network. I think some people, you know, they look at automation, oh, I'm going to do some config change on the network. And that's risky approach. And they'll probably give up because they made a, a mistake on the environment and they'll find it's too complicated. What tools, by the way, would you recommend? You already mentioned the Visual Studio Code. Anything else? Well, one tool that I was just made aware of at Ansible Fest is called Era Records Ansible. It provides a visualization of your Ansible playbooks. I just started working with it, but so far it's pretty impressive and pretty lightweight to install as well. So I'm planning to add it to my dev workstation. And it's just another visual way of seeing what's happening. So if you're consuming someone else's playbook or troubleshooting why something didn't work, it's just another avenue that's potentially more appealing to some people. Some people still you know, they like to see that GUI interface. I'm personally okay with just doing things at the CLI and seeing things there, but it's more, how do you get people embraced into a tool? And that's why sometimes I, you know, even seeing on the network automation Slack, people talking about Ansible Tower and AWX, it's like, well, yeah, these are great tools once you've understood Ansible Engine and how to write playbooks, but unless you're planning to require dynamic inventories or role-based access, you don't need to use that tool yet, but people are attracted to it because it provides that GUI interface. I find the error tool kind of just in between because it's just reporting only. So that's kind of the another nice tool. What do you guys have on your development workstations that you really like? Chris, what would you use? Right now, I would probably be using a combination of Stackstorm and Ansible. And then, of course, using Git. I am keenly interested in the testing aspects of this. So every once in a while, I go back and try to figure out you know, what I can do in my environment to test. Is the routing protocols working? All that kind of stuff. So a lot of it is really I'm having into the CI/CD side in the testing. Yeah, and for me, while well, Git would be a given, then... For whatever reason, I started using Sublime, and I'm just sticking with it. Ansible for automation, Napalm. We didn't mention Napalm today. Yes, Napalm. Yes, yep. absolutely. If you happen to need the data that Napalm can provide, and if you're lucky enough to work with a platform that's supported by Napalm, that's like the best way to gather data. And then you have Napalm Validate, which can compare the data you gathered either through Napalm or whatever else, with the way you want the data to be, and it can report all the discrepancies. So if you have structured data, it's pretty easy to figure out whether there's a difference between what should be somewhere and what is there. So Chris, this might solve your what BGP sessions are up issue. I can do that with SNMP anyways. It's easy. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> SNMP is the answer. What was the question? Alcohol. Uh, moving on. 
Carl, if people want to get in touch with you and ask you more questions or, I don't know, figure out how to follow your lead and get started, how can they get in touch with you? Ivan, thanks for inviting me to participate in the podcast and how people can reach me through uh, GitHub. Uh, so github.com forward slash Carl Buckman. That's my, you know, my full name is my handle. So reach me through there. And, uh, you know, I invite people if they have tools that they like uh, to use in their development environment, please help me augment in my IAC dev project. I invite people to uh, submit PRs. Thanks a million for this, Carl and Chris. Where can people find you? Netman Chris on Twitter, Netman Chris on GitHub. I've got a blog. I really have to do something there. I'm either close it or do something. Uh, control issues with a K, which is needing some dusting off. Yeah, that's basically all the places. I'm around if I can be helpful. Let me know. Well, you definitely shouldn't close that blog because I think that's the original place where the mean time to innocence was defined. And acceptable loss unit. Exactly. Was the other one that you uh, throw back on. So, yeah. So, you know, it has historic significance. Don't close it. And RESTful APIs in like 2011, 2012. Can't believe that I'm getting that old in networking. Yes, we're all getting older. Anyway, you can find me lurking around ipspace.net and I'm at iOS Hints on Twitter. You've been listening to Software Gone Wild. And if you want to listen to the previous episodes, just go to ipspace.net slash podcast and explore. Thank you for listening to this episode of Software Gone Wild. If you want to learn more about software-defined networking, network automation, and related topics, visit sdn.ipspace.net and explore our courses, books, webinars, and podcasts.